Welcome to the Hindu's Parley podcast. I'm your host this week, Shobhana K. Nair. Last week, former Congress President Rahul Gandhi, while speaking at an election rally in Kolar, Karnataka, raised the demand for a caste census. Meanwhile, in Bihar, a caste census is already underway. In consecutive elections, the BJP has managed to keep the splintered other backward castes unified under the larger Hindutva umbrella. By all indications, the opposition parties are working to chip at this monolith block that the BJP has created by foregrounding the caste debate. In this context, for the next 40 minutes, we shall deliberate on the question, is there a resurgence of the Mandal politics? We have with us uh, Mona Mehta, political scientist by training and associate professor in the School of Arts and Science at Ahmedabad University. Her research interests are in the areas of democracy, middle class politics, urban transformations and youth aspirations. And Amit Ahuja, a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and an associate professor of political science at the University of California. He is author of Mobilizing the Marginalized Ethnic Parties Without Ethnic Movements. In this context, my first question to both of you would be, uh, Mandal politics dominated the political discourse in the late 1980s and 1990s, leading up to the regionalization of India's polity. But things have changed dramatically now. Where do political forces representing Mandal issues stand today? What is the chief cause of their weakening? Mona, if you would go first on this. Sure. Thank you, Shobna, for having me on the show. So uh, let's understand what we mean when we say Mandal politics. In a way, I think the term Mandal politics is a very inadequate expression uh, because it does not really capture the profound changes in Indian society and politics it actually signals. It was a politics initiated by historically marginalized OVC or Bahujan caste groups in the 1980s and 90s in order to secure a greater share of political and economic power through reservation in the public sector. By every measure, that politics has eminently succeeded in capturing political power in large parts of India. It has transformed the caste profile of caste of state legislatures and parliament towards greater inclusivity of previously subordinated groups. And in fact, it has been so successful that it has shifted the political discourse towards a universal acceptance of OBC reservations, even among those who initially opposed it, such as the upper caste Hindu right represented by the BJP. So that today, even the BJP PM is openly projected as an OBC leader. While it is true that Mandal politics is mostly associated with political parties such as the Samajwadi Party, BSP in North India, I think it is a much more complex process of socio-political empowerment that cannot just be reduced to the ups and downs of specific political parties. So that's sort of my first, uh, my answer to what I think, how we should look at Mandal politics in a broader context and not just equate it with specific parties. You know, to the second question, I think, uh, you know, the second part of your question, rather than identifying a singular cause for the weakening of Mandal politics, I think it's worth looking at upper caste Hindu right-wing reactions against Mandal politics over three plus decades in terms of 
you know, very broad five phases, and I'll be very quick um, in just quickly articulating them. They're not in necessarily a historical chronology. But first, the phase was the sort of intense upper caste hostility to reservations at the societal level, where you saw upper caste youth in urban India emulating themselves, demanding a rollback of reservation policies. The second phase was a more concerted political reaction, uh, you know, in the form of commandal politics, spearheaded by, again, Hindutva upper caste forces to oppose the mandal mobilization in the form of the, you know, Ram Janmabhoomi movement. And interestingly, even in its opposition to mandal politics, the Hindu right co-opted OBC leaders, you know, such as Kalyan Singh. The third phase was a sort of upper caste collaboration with neoliberal forces and big capital that led to the shrinking of employment opportunities in the state and the private, you know, and, and, and the rising privatization. So it is in this context that the bogey of merit got its most strident expression as an instrument to oppose mandal politics. And I think we can see the reservations of uh, for the EWS, economically weaker sections category, as part of this attempt to retain upper caste hegemony and oppose mandal politics. The phase four involved, you know, upper caste mobilization of non-dominant OBC groups. So, you know, non-Yadavs, you know, which you talked about to give lower OBC some semblance of self-respect and identity, but without genuine rights and political power. And so the last phase is the Hindu rights opposition to the latest demand for a caste census, which is yet another reaction against Mandal politics. So that would be uh, my, my reaction to uh, this question, Shobhana. Amit, would you like to come in now and uh, do you agree with what Mona is saying about the whole movement doesn't die with just political parties' uh, fortunes, electoral fortunes? Yeah, no. So I, I, I So in some ways, I think that is correct, um, and and I think I I agree with a lot of what, what when I said. I just want to sort of expand the conversation a little bit. Um, so to first, you know, just sort of get at this issue of why why things are different today from as compared to when these forces first arose in the late eighties and uh, early nineteen nineties, and that's because as as Mona is saying, look, at the end of the day. You know, social realities of today are very different. We've had economic liberalization, and they have that have created more opportunities uh, for for people from all all sections in society. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that politically, things have are very different. Uh, the kind of control and oppression and the history of discrimination, a lot of those issues are a part of mainstream politics today. So in that sense, you know, what is Mandal bringing today? What is that movement? What does a movement stand for? That needs to be re-clarified, repackaged, and it remains to be seen how far how far that will go. The second point which I want to, you know, highlight here is where does Mandal politics in some ways stand? You know, sure, the movement doesn't die. But to begin with, I mean, you know, if you think about the leaders, the Karpuri Thakurs, the Rambilas Pasfans, Nitish Kumars, Lalu Yadavs, there is a lot of mobilization, energy, charisma there. Um, those kind of leaders are not present today. You know, if you look at today's leaders, they are a far cry from some of these names that I've just mentioned. Um, third, and, and this is something which is, again, we, we need to remember is 19, late 80s, early 90s are a moment of serious weakening of the Congress. You know, this is 
the major power center center of gravity of indian politics which is which is suddenly shifting two gandhis are lost uh, in 1980 you know in short succession both are prime ministers indira gandhi and rajiv gandhi the party is in crisis uh, and it the mandal forces have this great opportunity electoral opportunity to to emerge and and finally we've got to also ask ourselves for the movement's relevance is what is it bringing to the table um in in terms of its ideas in terms of its promises and, and i'm thinking here of for example think about women um you know women were not a focus of mandal politics as it emerged in the 1980s today if you go back to the last up election had the sp received the same vote share from women as the bjp did it would have actually trounced the bjp uh, so a gap has actually opened up in the favor of bjp when it comes to women voters uh, and and that it raises an interesting question about you know how mandal politics is going to uh, answer uh, these these kind of demands and aspirations which are which are which are visible in india what does mandal politics have to say to dalits how inclusive is it of other groups so these are questions that the movement for the sake of its own relevance needs to answer and and you know sort of gives you a sense of where it stands today uh, vis-a-vis its 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 former status uh, in, in indian politics Very interesting. Uh, now, one of the ways the Mandal parties have tried to regain their hold in the public discourse is the demand for caste-based censuses. As I pointed out earlier, also how the Congress has has started this demand. Bihar is already conducting a caste census. Now, do you see this as a reaction to the politics of Hindutva? and will it have the same effect as it did in the 1990s during the peak of the mandir movement mona why don't you take this uh sure so you know i think uh, with regards to you know the question of the caste census today the caste census i think is an ingenious reaction against the politics of dividing obcs by upper caste uh, you know hindu right forces um and so i think it is a bit uncharitable to say that it is simply a reaction against hindutva uh, even though at one level it 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 of course can be read as that uh, i'd say it's not just a reaction but a smart strategy to counter upper caste hegemony and it should be seen again you know as part of a larger ongoing historical process of seeking social justice i want to reiterate that its ingenuity goes beyond electoral performance and we should not try to measure its success merely in terms of whether or not it will bear immediate electoral fruits as it did for mandal parties in the 1990s and 2000s and i think the the points that amit raised about you know how it it sort of defines itself in the current moment uh, vis-a-vis all these new forces that we see in our society will be very important so i think the debate on the caste census also invites us uh to really think about the tremendous dynamism fluidity but also the persistence of caste in modern indian society and based on my own research on the cultural politics of urbanization in gujarat uh, in which i focus on an obc pastoralist community that has migrated to urban gujarat and the ways in which it is sort of trying to navigate the urban informal economy i can see the tremendous ways in which caste groups are reinventing themselves even in the urban context so we can expect this latest debate on the caste census 
to unleash a new and dynamic process of social churning and social justice with regards to caste in Indian democracy. And of course, whether or not we will find the voices, the leaders to articulate this new context, you know, of a larger, you know, project of social emancipation, you know, I think that remains to be seen. Amit, would you uh, take it and would you also stress on the second part of my question that will it really have an impact? Do you see it having an impact in BJP? Will it be able to, will the opposition gambit be successful in chipping off the monolith, as I mentioned earlier? You know, remains to be seen. You know, so I think the idea of the census, uh, as Ms. Mona said, you know, it's been it's been around in 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 and then this this you know, so we've we've done the you know, we've thought we've talked a lot about caste census, why it needs to be extended beyond just Dalits and 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 uh, and Adivasis. And you know, again, as Mona pointed out, you know, in Bihar it's being carried out. There is there is a conversation about having it across the country. But at the end of the day, you know, what is the purpose here? What is it promising? And I think that's something that we need to clarify, and that the that these parties, opposition parties, also would have to clarify: is it a reservation for jobs? Because if you look at state jobs uh, now, it's very evident and has been done for a, for a, for a while that you know these these uh, set of jobs are actually not expanding; they're shrinking. Uh, so what are we promising? You know, is this reservation in state assemblies, in the parliament? Well, OBCs are already well represented there. So it's an interesting, it, it, it's as an idea, it, it is very, uh, it, it still holds a, a particular power and, and, it's, and its relevance and power is because of the employment crisis in India. But how is it going to be implemented? What does it mean? That needs to be clarified because without that clarification, uh, we really don't have a sense of how far the appeal of this idea will, will go when it comes to the electorate. Um, will it be able to dislodge or, uh, you know, the politics of BJP? I am not very sure there for one simple reason that the BJP is actually really good at, you know, when it comes to mobilizing the OBCs, they've already made inroads. They've understood the grammar of caste. The BJP of Advani and Bajpai uh, were not as good at this. Under Modi, more OBCs have been included in the party. Uh, OBC symbols are being used in their electoral campaigns. So there is a, this is a very different kind of party. It has come to grips with caste in a very major way, uh, which was not true in the past. And it's and it's doing so differently in the sense that it's doing so in the terms, oftentimes, of the OBCs and not on terms that it wants to dictate entirely on its own. That's 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 a once first one side of the story. The the other side of the story, of course, is is the fact that BJP has nationalism on its side. It owns the idea of nationalism today, and when it comes to electoral campaigns, especially if you're thinking of 2024, that's a national election. And Indian voters, we know, uh, make a distinction between state assembly elections and national elections. Uh, they realize that the, the, the issues are different. So maybe in state assembly elections, the Mandal idea uh, will be able to counter BJP mobilization. In national elections, 
you know, if you, you know, the kind of discourse and the kind of campaigns that will be run will be at, at a national level, national issues will dominate. And there, because the BJP dominates, Mandal on its own is going to struggle to 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 fight uh, the BJP uh, mobilization. I think I also want to quickly just mention one more thing. See, we also have to closely examine this idea of jitni abadi utna haq. Uh, you know, this connection, connecting rights to the share of population. And in some ways, this is beginning to shift the discourse from historical injustices to distribution. And and this it has very serious implications because then it comes down to uh, you know where which category you are placed in and so there will be internal contradictions internal uh, conversations conflicts that will arise because of this discourse we we see it as a unifying strategy and it may not be uh, entirely in that direction there may be internal conflicts and contradictions uh, that may arise because of this particular uh, call that they're making. Very interesting that what both of you have mentioned. Now, I have this question that's been sort of a niggling doubt uh, for a while. Uh, when we are talking about caste census, how does this really, does it end up alienating, or, and, or this entire discourse, does it end up alienating Dalits and Adivasi population? Mona, why don't you take it first? So it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I don't see it as a way of, uh, you know, uh, as it necessarily alienating Dalit and Asi, uh, Adivasis. So on the face of it, you know, a caste census uh, sort of does not explicitly affect Hindu Dalits and STs because these groups are already being enumerated. However, if the caste census opens up to enumerating Dalits and STs who are not Hindus, uh, so, you know, such as Dalit Christians and Muslims, etc., and, you know, there's a sort of a, I think, uh, across the country, sort of complex variations on this question. Uh, then it would open up other interesting possibilities. But, you know, on the whole, I'd say that, you know, even if we're talking about an OBC caste census, you know, if done, it would have a ripple effect on the overall discourse of social justice with regards to all marginalized groups, uh, including Dalits and Adivasis. And I, and I'm not necessarily seeing this as a, you know, as a relationship of antagonism or some sort of a zero-sum game. What's your take on this, Amit? No, I agree with Mona. I think she's absolutely right. That uh, to me, it's not obvious as to why there will be a conflict between Adivasis Dalits uh, on one, one hand and, and OBCs. Uh, on the other, in fact, uh, what it may do, in terms just to highlight what Mona is saying, is that you know, so, so take take an example uh, of a policy that's that's come up and that's again been talked about for a while, which is reservations in the private sector. Now, so let's set aside in terms of you know what the implications of that policy are, but you know, on their own, the kind of political clout, the numbers that you need. Dalits and Adivasis don't have those to push for it. Now, if the OBCs were also were to back it, then it becomes very difficult politically to resist this call. And so in some ways, you know, just because of the electoral logic of numbers, 
you know, the kind of social justice policies or discourse that will be pushed, you know, if if it comes, you know, if it basically means that, you know, we have a, a map of how disadvantage is situated, how it is, you know, is how it appears, how it manifests itself across Indian society, uh, that, you know, you know, there I think Dalits and Adivasis could actually end up uh, benefiting uh, from, uh, from a caste census. Uh, actually, I, if I may quickly comment, Shobhana, uh, you know, I, I totally agree, uh, you know, with Amit again. And, and you know, on this question of who is going to feel threatened, Dalits and Adivasis are not going to, uh, to feel threatened. I mean, it's very clear and, and perhaps obvious. It's the upper caste who are feeling threatened, right? They're the, they're the feeling the most threatened because, you know, again, Amit raised this very interesting point about the contradictions inherent, you know, some possible contradictions inherent in this. What are we, what, what is this demand about? You know, when, you know, demand for greater reservation, uh, you know, in the public sector that is shrinking, you know, where opportunities are already shrinking. Uh, so, so the, so perhaps the demand is to, let's look at the numbers. Let's look at, you know, whether, you know, this, the segment of the population is, in fact, far bigger than what we had thought it to be, right? And to expose the perhaps minuscule percentage of the upper caste population, right? Um, and so ultimately, I think the real threat of the census is to the upper castes. And that's why the Hindu right is opposing it. Now, my question to both of you in this, exactly from taking from whatever you guys have said so far, so this entire call for caste census, do you think it's just an empty political exercise or is it genuine need, demographic need for us to make a assessment? Amit, do you want to answer that? Yeah, no, so I think yeah, there are two sides to this. One is I think it's important to, for us to understand where where disadvantage, especially historic disadvantages, you know, are still surviving. How do they manifest themselves? And we don't need to know this just across caste categories. Uh, you know, so, you know, for example, how our upper caste situated is compared to Dalits. We have a sense of some of these things already. But I think we also need to know these things to figure out what's happening within these categories. So among Dalits, you know, are there groups, are there sex sections, are there certain parts of the country where Dalits are doing better? Are there certain, uh, you know, Dalits, are, for example, are made up of 400 subcasts, you know, are, are different, some jatis doing better than others. So so in some ways, you know, there are, uh, there are real public policy uh, questions here that the census will be able to answer. It may allow us to direct policies more effectively. Uh, towards those who most need state assistance, who most needs uh, who need benefits from, say, for example, the kind of affirmative action policies we have. Uh, so, so you know, so so there are there are real re real promises here. But at the same time, yes, it has a census when the moment you start counting them and your and and its counting is being done for a purpose. Uh, you know, where counting is going, you know, where numbers are going to be linked to distribution. That is, is going to be a source of conflict. Uh, no, no two ways about it. So it, you know, it comes with. It's a double-edged sword here. It comes with clear advantages. There are benefits to it, public policy-wise, but there is also the downside of exacerbating, deepening fault lines uh, in society. Uh, 
and 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 that you know those are those are conversations uh, you know india will have to go through because in some ways you know you have to also ask us yourself this question that you know how do we think about historical disadvantage today uh, we've had 75 years of independent existence we've had state policies uh, that have been there uh, to 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 address some of these uh, gaps uh, some have some of those policies have been more effective than others uh, but you know going forward we need to ask ourselves how do we think about these things and and how do we address historical disadvantages uh, because at the end of the day in democracy uh, in a, in a democratic system there is a particular logic of numbers that does play out and uh, you know th- th- what we are seeing today this call for census and its linkage to distribution is in some ways the manifestation of that logic mona your take on this is think it's an empty exercise or? uh no i mean i think i i'd largely echo uh everything that uh, you know amit has said you know that um, it's certainly not an empty exercise if anything you know in this age of data uh, we we need the data in order to make effective policies and if we are to sort of you know improve the human condition in you know in indian democracy of 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 you know our vast population much of it is which is marginalized we'll have to look at this question of enumeration where they stand in the social hierarchy uh, in order to sort of devise uh, more effective uh, policies so it is you know it is an absolutely in some ways an essential exercise to do but an exercise as amit rightly pointed out is a double edged sword it's going to lead to um, to conflicts uh, you know it's it's going to lead to contestations about distribution you know and uh, who gets what you know and how much but you know at this moment i think because we're on the you know sitting on the eve of the next general election in some sense there's also this hope of you know bringing about a certain kind of pan opposition unity you know uh, that this issue seems to have so you know will that will that unity happen you know uh, who will be the face of it you know how will this agenda address the question of nationalism as amit said the bjp owns you know i think all of those questions are important and um so it's a, it, it's it's a very important issue uh, and hardly a flippant you know exercise the last question that i want to pose uh, to both of you if you can explain the north south divide in this whole mandal equation where does the fact that uh, mandal parties uh, that began out of social justice movements those dominated by obcs they have retained significance in states like tamil nadu and kerala andhra pradesh and even to some extent in karnataka so how how do you explain this difference uh, mona you first and then amit uh yeah so i think in some sense your question itself alludes to the answer in that the history of the southern states is very different from that of the north uh, when it comes to caste based social justice movements uh the south uh, you know has had a much longer history of institutionalization of lower caste reservations uh you know which actually predates indian independence in in some places so in that sense mandal politics in so far as it refers to you know the 27% reservation for obcs in the public sector is a largely north indian phenomenon but the percentage of obc reservation in the south you know is 
for instance, much more than the stipulated 50% cap on reservations. And it, it started much earlier. So, but what I would like to point out here is an interesting Southern development vis-a-vis, you know, what we are calling Mandal politics, uh, you know, and it is the leader of a Southern Dravidian party, Mr. Stalin of the DMK, who has recently led a pan-opposition platform called the All India Federation for Social Justice to demand, uh, you know, a new caste census. And I think this is very significant. And this is not only about endorsing the caste-based social justice movement in the South, but an effort to protect federalism and regional and linguistic diversity, you know, which Hindutva is frankly seen as threatening, uh, you know, uh, by those in the South. Amit, why don't you go in? Yeah, so... You know, I've looked at this in my in my book, so I've I've have some views on this. So I think the first thing, as Mona has correctly pointed out, look the history of of caste mobilization, especially mobilization for social justice, anti caste movements is much stronger, well institutionalized in the in the southern states, and you know that has changed in some, in many ways the common sense of southern politics. So even when political parties are out of office or when they're in office, these movements have been, because of their strength and their widespread influence, have been able to hold their leaders accountable for pushing these policies. And these leaders come out of and are remain connected to these movements. So the discourse in the southern states is, is different as compared to the, the northern states where you know the mandal politics has largely been not entirely but largely been an an electoral arena of you know uh, in some ways episode uh, or you know so if you sort of think about the 30 years of mandal politics its roots are electoral roots it's about bringing a certain set of castes together stitching a coalition that would get you across the line uh, to capture power. And because of that, the, the absence of those kind of movements, that kind of common sense that we see in the South, uh, you know, the moment they came up against a stronger, better organized electoral force, which is, and I'm thinking about the BJP, while being in, being out of power, they've just lost influence among their own flock. One thing Else, which was also sort of very interesting about the southern politics is that you know the parties that you refer to, uh, Shobna, these are parties that were just not caste plus parties. Over a period of time, they they were not just caste only parties. They were caste plus. So they they, they you know for on their agenda were were regional issues, linguistic issues, and they were able to mobilize different castes uh, under their banner. I'll give you one interesting you know data point. Because if you look at, for example, CSDS surveys, surveys I have done on my own, uh, you know, at different time points. One thing we find is that, you know, when you ask people, are you interested in voting with your fellow caste members? You know, do you consider caste in picking political leaders? Do you consider caste in choosing political parties? Across these questions, we find that in the southern states, fewer people use caste to make electoral choices as compared to the North. So if you go by that, if caste is so important when it comes to elections, the Mandal parties should actually be doing much better. 
But the fact is that because of how, you know, poorly organized these parties are on the ground, because of the absence of those kind of movements, those deep roots, they've actually lost the organizational front because they're up against a much more powerful electoral machine in, in the BJP that uses both caste politics as well as, as national politics uh, you know, in their campaigns and is being able to build some of these coalitions. I mean, so, you know, if you look at the sheer numbers, uh, BJP is picking up 50% of the total vote share in elections across some of the northern states. That is just a spectacular number. Right. Thank you so much, both of you. I would have loved to continue with this fascinating conversation for over next few more minutes, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you, and we'll have you back soon here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Avna. Thank you. See you.